Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. Good morning. I'm going to miss that song. Um, not really. Um, so today we're, um, first, my name is Chris Causey. I'm the lead pastor here. Um, we're wrapping up a series um, today that we started at the beginning of this month. And I've heard from some of you, even in the midst of last week, with uh, kind of the personality test. This has just been a really helpful series, really eye-opening series. And my desire today is kind of to bring it all together and to leave you with something as you walk out to help you continue. Because while the series may end, uh, the step of us being able to use our words in a way that brings life has just begun. And today I want to kind of help us overcome some of the barriers that lead to breakdown. I came across a story uh, early January 2011 in a small little Illinois town. Um, Around 5 p.m., a woman gets a phone call, and it's from her husband. As she's listening to this phone call, what she can hear is a little bit of rustling, jostling. It sounds sort of violent. The, the words muffling coming through um, sound kind of ominous and threatening and violent as well. And as she listens um, for about 30 seconds, she's starting to get really concerned that maybe what she's actually hearing is a potential hostage situation and that her husband has called her in order to kind of bring an alert to the fact that he's being held hostage. He worked at a school. He was a middle school teacher, and so um, she immediately hangs up, dials 911. Minutes later, um, 30 SWAT team members descend upon the school. Uh, Bulletproof vest, uh, armed, automatic weapons, and they begin to surround the school and systematically press in and search for the gunman that they believe has her husband hostage. Over three hours, the news, uh, three different helicopters will hover above the school. Roads are rerouted, diverted. Programs that were supposed to have been going on that evening are being shut down. And as they go room to room, terrifying people who are in the midst of closed-door meetings, what they eventually discover is they get alerted to that the man they're looking for, the one who's being held hostage, has just shown up at home. You see, what had happened was this man, as he was getting into his car... His phone in his back back pocket had butt-dialed his wife. And dialing the music he was listening to in the middle of the drive was a little bit um, hostage-sounding and a little threatening. And so this woman, in the midst of hearing this butt-dial phone call, becomes convinced that her husband's in danger when in reality he was just listening to violent music, right? And and what I loved about that story as I was reading it um, Besides the fact that if you're the the town manager for this community, you've just seen thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars wasted on a drill because that's what that thing became. And um, but that this thing was essentially a miscommunication, a breakdown in a communication that led to a breakout of SWAT team members. And while you and I have never had a SWAT team, hopefully, call down on our breakdown of communication, we all know what it's like for that same breakdown to occur in our own households, in our workplaces, too. Maybe it's the milk that didn't get picked up, or maybe it's sometimes the child that doesn't get picked up, or maybe something a little bit more severe than that, where you go to sleep that night and you refuse to talk to one another, 
or maybe it's a week or a month between a family member where you just refuse to have a conversation. Reality is we've all lived on the other side of breakdowns. And, uh, and what I want to do this morning as we wrap up this series is give you some insight to ways that you can have breakthrough in conversation. That there are some breakdowns that while we as humans like to think we're one in a million and that we're special, the reality is, is that we're one of a million. And that we're very much similar regardless of where we are, what time in the world we happen to live, or the geography in which we call our address at home that we're really one of a million and that our struggles and our tendencies are our struggles and our tendencies. So this morning, I want to give you two of the biggest barriers that lead to breakdowns, the two kind of glaring things that if we're not careful can seep into our communication and lead to a breakdown. But by becoming aware that they're there, we can actually position ourselves to experience breakthrough in our communication. To to get there, I want to take you to uh, a moment, one of the more iconic, famous moments in the life and in the history of ancient Israel. You see, today, um, on about 12,000, 16,000 miles from where we currently are, is the current nation of Israel, the modern nation. But Israel as a nation wasn't just founded in 1940s, 1950s, in the aftermath of World War II. As an ancient people, they've been around for thousands of years. And that while it may not be apparent today if you were to walk through uh, modern Israel, ancient Israel was really a group of 12 tribes that came together to function as one nation. You can imagine a little bit like if we had 50 states, but all 50 states were all, each state was one family, extensively large. And the, the nation of Israel was that way. There were 12 distinct tribes, all distinct bloodlines, and they functioned as one nation. But the reality is actually inside of these 12 tribes were two significant groups. There were almost a federation. Uh, There was a northern federation of 10 tribes. They were a little poor. They had um, little less access to influence. And there was the southern federation of two tribes. And these this federation, these 10 and these two, were often the source of tension within the nation. And so Israel kind of first established as a dominant kind of nation state by the king David. His son Solomon takes this little tiny nation, Israel, and makes it an international player. Solomon becomes one of the more famous ancient kings in human history along the lines with someone like a King Tut or Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Those are both two kind of ancient kings that most people have heard of. And then you get to um, Solomon. When he passes away, his son is the one who... Um, kind of inherits the throne, and his name is Rehoboam. Now, Rehoboam has just been given the throne, and it's in that moment that we're going to dive into this morning and look at about 14 verses that play out, because this is a turning point in the nation of Israel's history. It says in verse 1 of chapter 12 of 1 Kings, and it's called 1 Kings because there's more than one king's book. It's a historical book. It chronicles the history of the kings of Israel. So 1 and 2, both of them uh, kind of kind of document the history of this Israel nation and the kings and the monarchy and what ultimately becomes their de- demise under Nebuchadnezzar. Um, so what you have is this this moment, verse 1, it says, Rehoboam went to Shechem, 
Now, we're not reading the entirety of 1 Kings, nor are we living in this time period. And so there's not necessarily some of the ominous turns musically in our heads the way that the readers of this the first time would have had. You see, Shechem is in that northern portion of the nation. Shechem was kind of the functional capital of that northern federation. If you go back to our nation's history with the Civil War, during the time that there was a confederacy and there was the Union, there was actually two different capitals. Shechem would have been the capital for this northern federation. And so Rehoboam goes there because at the end of the day, they recognize, just like David and Solomon had seen, that in order to be king of Israel, both federations had to crown you king. So he goes to Shechem seeking to be crowned. And while he's there, it says all of Israel, specifically these these ten tribes, have come to make him king. So they've arrived to completely kind of participate in the coronation. It says, now when Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, and then we get this parenthetical thought, when he was still in Egypt where he'd fled from King Solomon. Like if we're reading this in the original history when this thing's written, in our heads we'd have, we would have heard the sound like the dun, 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 right? It would have had this like indication for us that, wait a second, there's some stirrings underneath the surface. We need to pay attention. See, Rehoboam's father, Solomon, had had a little bit of a battle with this guy and had banished him to exile in Egypt. But now Solomon's dead, and he's showing back up, and he's there that day when this plays out. And it says, so they sent for Jeroboam, the the nation of uh, these ten federation tribes, and it says that they, he and the whole assembly went to Rehoboam. So he's essentially functioning as their spokesperson. So the history, the backdrop, the tension that Solomon had experienced is now back in front of Rehoboam. And it says that, They said this, your father put a heavy yoke on us. Well, what do they mean? Well, a yoke was something that you put on an oxen to to plow. This is an imagery. What they're saying is, Solomon, your father built this nation off our backs. Remember how I told you the Northern Federation was a little weaker. Even though there were 10 tribes, the true power brokers, the ones who had the military strength, the one who had the financial strength was the Southern Federation. Because they were based in Jerusalem, which was a significant city. So they had the power. They had the influence. And what Solomon had did is Solomon had essentially functionally enslaved the ten tribes up north and used their backs to build the temple, used their backs to build the roads, the walls. He had taxed them heavily to pay for all the stuff that they were physically being forced to build. And it was their sons that were conscripted in the armies that were sent out to fight. And so these people had paid a heavy price. That's why they say, look, there's a heavy yoke on us. But now lighten the harsh labor, all the forced enslavement and the heavy yoke he put on us and we will serve you. And Rehoboam answered, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. And what we see in this moment is that all the kind of the weight of decades have come to fruition. They've appeared before Rehoboam on this very special day. And Rehoboam asked for three days because he needs by law to consult with his advisors. That even though he's the king, he has to speak with a unified voice on behalf of the government. So he says, give me three days and, and come back to me and I'll have your answer as the king who's getting ready to be crowned. 
And so he goes to his advisors, and it's in the midst of his interaction in the next few verses that we read that we see two of the biggest barriers, two of the two biggest reasons for breakdown in communication start to play out in slow motion. You can miss it because it happens so fast, but that's typically how breakdown in communication happen with us too, isn't it? You're having a conversation, and then all of a sudden there's a hard pivot, and you're arguing, you're fighting, your teenager is stomping off to their room, rolling their little beady eyes at you, and you're like, what just happened? We were good. And this is what's playing out here is a quick turn. And I want to slow it down a little bit so that we can see what happens. So we see Rehoboam in verse 6, consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. Now, Solomon, for all of his imperfections and for all of his foibles and serious mistakes that he made, Solomon overall was a very wise king. He had really built Israel up into an international player. He had made them a great nation in the presence and the eyes of the states that bordered them. And so these men had watched this play out. They had heard the wisdom. They had seen the decisions. They had this experience. And so he goes to them and he says, how would you advise me? To answer these people, he asked. And they replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will be your servants. Now, Rehoboam, it says, rejected their advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. The reason Rehoboam rejects it, this is important, is no, no self-respecting. Middle Eastern, ancient Middle Eastern king would, would do what they just said. It would have been seen as humiliating. Kings didn't serve their people. This idea of servant leadership that's popular in books today, that's, that idea hasn't been around that long in human history. The origin of that idea is actually Jesus himself who models it. But in the ancient world, a servant leader is not something that exists. And Rehoboam is like, that's humiliating. And so he rejects him. And he moves to the young guys, his, his boys, you know, like his dogs. He's like, all right, guys, what's your advice? L listen to it. He said, how should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father has put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. I mean, you can almost hear him, right? They're like all swagger and bravado, and they're like, oh, he beat you with whips. I'm going to get the scorpions out and beat you. Now, just in case, because it, it can be easy to read that and think he means actual scorpions. He doesn't actually mean little tiny clinking like with the tail thing, right? He's not coming out whacking them with scorpions. A scorpion was an ancient whip. It was different. Well, a regular whip was just tend to be leather straps. A scorpion was a type of whip that had a metal-like nail at the end. So when you beat someone, the tail, the whip would lash and the metal rod would go inside their body. And then you'd yank it out. It was a nasty, nasty little device. So it's brutal. And he's saying, oh, you know, you think it was, you think it was hard now. You wait till I double the workload. 
and I double your taxes. Oh, you had it easy when my father was in control. And there's so much bravado. There's so much kind of just, we got this. Let's go. Their leadership theory was you bully people into submission. You dominate those people to make them listen to you. That was their approach, which honestly isn't far from some of our approaches sometimes, isn't it? That we interact with someone or there's a process or an issue. What do we do? We want to we want to get our point across, so we kind of we turn the dial up. We get a little louder, get a little bit more forceful. All of a sudden, the glare and the eye comes into play. Like some of us know what it's like to be on the other side of our mom or our dad giving us that stare. You didn't have to say a word; you knew what that stare meant. It was a power play, and this is what they're doing. They're threatening. It's it's hard to to kind of pick up it on English, but you can get how crass they are because the proverb they quote, that when they said, my, my, my finger is thicker than my father's waist, it's actually an ancient kind of uh, Middle Eastern proverb during the time period. It's really crass. Like, I can't actually say what they really are saying in this passage. It's that inappropriate. Here's the king, and he's saying that inappropriate statement. Like he and his boys are just sitting around, and they're like, yeah, yeah, you should go tell them that. Yeah, and then we'll beat them with scorpions and a real one too. Right, no, calm down. That's a little weird. It might bite us. Right, and so they're like having this moment, and they're going to go back, and that's how they're going to play this thing out. And I think what we have to do is we have to slow this down enough to realize that one of the things that we're starting to notice here with the use of the proverb, with the use of the imagery, is an understanding of their history is that there's one of those little breakdown moments happening in slow motion. So yeah, it's the ego is starting to show up. This um, I, I love the image of an iceberg because it's one of those like metaphors that, that's so fitting. And I think what we have in this moment is one of these. And this is oftentimes where one of the breakdown in communications happens. It's an iceberg problem. You see, it may look like all we see on the surface is this small little thing. It's just the proverb. It's just the, it's just the I'm going to beat you with scorpions. It's, it's a power play. It's a domination leadership. He's the king. He's going to show him who's boss. But in actuality, what we have, what's really interesting is what's going on underneath the surface. You see, I think what we see with Rehoboam and his friends is a lot of insecurity. An inability to admit when they're wrong, an unwillingness to bend their knee. They feel threatened. They feel stupid. His father was considered to be one of the greatest kings in Israel's history, and he's just been handed the throne. He's been handed the crown that used to sit on his father's head, the man who was considered at the time to be the wisest person who had ever lived. Right? That's that's like having your 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 mother or your father, and they're the best lawyer, or they're the best musician, or the best dancer, the or the best cook, and all of a sudden you're the the baker who's taking over your father's business, and you can't cook anything. This is Rehoboam. He's insecure. He's inadequate. He feels all of that, but he can't say it. And so what does he do? He does exactly what you and I would do. He lies. He cuts down. He tears down so that he feels a little bit more built up. Because he can't confront the reality of what's underneath the surface. And so he has to cover that up so no one else sees it. 
And so how do you cover it up? You overcompensate. You can normally tell when you're around someone who's got some insecurity because they, they over whatever it is. They overreact. They overcompensate. They exaggerate whatever they did, whoever they talked to, whatever they were a part of or how much money they have. Why? Because it's an iceberg issue. There's so much underneath the surface. And as a general rule of thumb, in, in my life, when I see it within me or when I see it in people around me, whenever I see an overreaction, I always look underneath the surface. I don't move past it. I don't move beyond it. I move under it. I'm like, where did that come from? I start to interrogate myself. Why did I just say that? Why did I just do that? That, that seemed a little over the top. So there must be something underneath the bottom. Doesn't always play out, but a lot of times, like, I mean, like 99.9999 times, it does. And what we see here is the ego getting in the way of them being able to see. But the elders, if you notice, they don't respond with ego. The elders' response was, if you do this, if you're willing to do this, they'll serve you forever. The elders don't feel threatened. There is no iceberg. They're like, look, it's going to be hard, but if you... If you're willing to humble yourself, then what you'll find is that they're, they'll submit to you in a way that your father never saw. They have empathy. They are able to understand the people's needs that brought them to this moment in the first place. They watched his father be brutal and harsh in the way he led. And he's like, man, I'm telling you, if you do this, it will change everything. And what they're modeling for us And for Rehoboam is the answer to what we do when the ego starts to show up. They're modeling humility. Now, humility is an interesting word. If if you read a lot in sociological or psychological literature, you realize that humility, which was an obsession of the ancient world, is not really much of an obsession in the modern world. Humility is not very popular. It's only actually been studied even, it was only considered academically viable, worth studying, and just in the last 20 years. And it was still an indirect study. It's only in recent years, humility's even gotten more of attention because they've started to see some of the tendencies. And what was interesting, New York Times just um, wrote an article about this kind of massive research project that was kind of like a meta-level um, study. And around humility and what they found in the course of studying this, they first of all, they defined humility, which is really helpful. It said humility is characterized by an ability to accurately acknowledge one's limitations and abilities like that. Like we just figure that part out. We're probably in a good place. Right. And it's an interpersonal stance that is others oriented rather than self-focused. But that's as they begin to dive in and dig into the research, to the writings, and to kind of what's been discussed, that that's what stood out about humility. And the way that they were able to gauge people, which is kind of terrifying, was that they found less than about 5% of the American population, based on their estimates, is humble. Um, Which means, if you do the math, over 90% of us are not, right? Right. is they would use these surveys, and I thought these were interesting questions they would ask people. One of them was, um, they asked people to agree or disagree with the statement. I feel small when others disagree with me on topics that are close to my heart. I was like, that's a really telling question. When someone disagrees with you about something you feel passionate about, do you feel small? 
Another one was, um, for the most part, others have more to learn from me than I have to learn from them. Which, to the people answering that survey, honestly, wow. Now, because most of us would never say that out loud. But we think it, right? When we're sitting across the table or we're sitting in a conversation with our coworker, you know, it's that young coworker that just started like three weeks ago and, and they're at the table and they've got all these great ideas and you're like, you have no clue. You don't even know what you're doing. I'm not going to say that out loud to you. I'm just going to smile and nod and say that's a great idea. We should look into it. But the fact that these people were willing to answer this, but here's what was interesting. Those who scored high on humility, what they noticed was that they also scored low on political and cultural and ideological polarization, which means they weren't belligerent and angry and extreme in their views. Because if you're humble, you're able to realize things aren't as clear-cut and as simple as most news anchors, as most Twitter accounts make them sound. Because in reality, the world is far more complicated than the oversimplification. So I just want to give you a couple phrases that will change your life. And to do so, we're going to practice it out loud. I'm not going to make you look at the person that perhaps you came with, because that may make you uncomfortable. But here's a couple of things that will change the game and facilitate humility. You just need to say this out loud a lot. Try at least once a day to say one of these phrases. But first, I was wrong. I was really wrong. You were right. Does that hurt a little bit? It does, doesn't it? We don't like to be wrong. We walk around and we never verbalize it, but we like to think that we know everything. And this is default. My seven-year-old, oftentimes, when I'm telling her something she's never heard, she goes, I know. I'm like, you do not know that. You have no clue. And she's like, I know. I'm like, no, you don't even know that. It's like, I know. And I'm like, oh. But that's our default. We know. We already knew that. And sometimes I'm like, did you really know that? I know. I'm like, oh. Right? But the ability to say, I'm wrong. I don't know. You were right. And to, to utter the next words, I apologize. You can do that. I apologize. Please forgive me. I was selfish. When's the last time you've said that out loud? Not right now, but prior. You're like, oh, I just said it. No, no, no. The time before that. Like, I was selfish. That's, that is a scary thing to verbalize out loud, but it is far more true than we'd like to admit. And sometimes I have to kind of proverbially force those words out of my mouth because I know I need to say it out loud, not for the other person to hear, but for me to self-correct, self-orient, and realize I, I am self-centered sometimes. And then a phrase that's helpful for some of us to be able to verbalize out, out loud, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know is freeing. Because sometimes we make up stuff, don't we? We have no clue what we're talking about, and we just make up something. Your kids ask you a question, you have no idea, and you're like, I'm just going to say whatever comes to mind. 
Well, well, and son, and that's why there are eight planets instead of nine, right? Or it's just whatever. That's why the sky is blue. And we just, and we hope they don't Google because they'll know we're lying. But the freedom to just say, I don't know. Let's look it up. Is actually a really good thing because it fosters curiosity, especially if you're a parent. Is, I don't know. Let's look it up. Because curiosity is a driver in humility. Another issue that we see kind of play out in this moment in slow motion is that the Rehoboam and his boys are all focused on the moment. They're all kind of centered on what's happening right then and the barrier that it presents for where they want to go. It's all about the now. So it's dramatic, it's emotional, it's short-term, they're escalating, they're talking about whipping people with scorpions, they're using crass proverbs, they're, they're just all bravado, overcompensating. And yet when they go and talk to the elders, what does the elders say? The elders aren't focused on the moment. The elders are focused on what matters, which is different. I, I came across this story this week um, in the news that um, made me like, normally I don't overreact to stories, but I was like, Jenny, you have to come and see this. Um, so there was this uh, lady who uh, had um, made the rounds on Facebook, and then it went into national news. So she went to put down her 18-month-old, and um, when she went to put down her 18-month-old, and she went to the room to check the baby monitor, this is what she saw. Now, if you can, we're going to leave that image up there. Now, as she began to stare, what she noticed was right beside her sleeping baby was what appears to be a ghost baby's face. You see that? That little tiny thing right beside the kid's arms is a little ghost baby face. And so she stared and she was like, I, I had trouble sleeping because right there, right beside my child was some ghost snuggled up and she would peep in. She'd go back to the monitor and the baby was still there. And she hardly slept the entire night because she, she stared at the baby monitor, wanting to make sure that the ghost baby didn't move. Right now in reality, the next morning when she finally went in there to get her son out of the crib and she pulled back the sheet, this is what was actually underneath it. It was a sticker. And it was coming through the monitor. And, and I'm sitting there and I'm watching it. And I'm like, time out, Jenny. Like, everybody has missed the headline. The headline is not mom doesn't sleep at night staring at the baby monitor because a ghost baby is present. The headline is that mama sacrificed her baby to the ghost baby in the crib. She left the kid there. And she's going to brag on Facebook that she watched the ghost baby. I'm like, go get your child, woman. Go get the child. There's a ghost baby there. Ask questions later. And Jenny's like, yeah, that's about right. I'm like, yeah, that's right. That woman abandoned that child. Somebody should be knocking at her door and be like, why'd you let that ghost baby in the same crib? Why didn't you get your kid out? Why'd you wait to eight hours later to do anything about it? And see, I think this is actually what's happening in the story. These guys, Rehoboam and the boys, have missed the headline of what's happening. They come before these people, and what they hear is a what. The what is reduce our workload. 
But what the elders hear, they're, they're focused on what matters. So they hear the why, not the what. The why is we want this thing to work. We want this nation to keep moving. We want to stick and stay together. We're here because we believe it can work, but this is what needs to happen for it to work. But they don't hear that. They're so focused on the what, they don't hear the why. And a tribe that had come to figure out a solution together gets a response that threatens to tear them apart. Reality is is that this is something that you and I can fall into a trap and it leads to the breakdown of communication. We fall into the trap of focusing on the what and we miss the why. We're so committed to being right, we can miss what's right in front of us. Which is what Rehoboam and the boys do. They miss what's right in front of them, which is an opportunity to save their nation, to become an even better king, in fact, than what Solomon had been. Because he had never accomplished this. But they miss it. And I think one of the things that can be really empowering for us, if we're going to practice humility and be able to verbalize, I was wrong, I was selfish, please forgive me. You were right. Is to also learn to focus on what matters, not just the moment we find ourselves in. And to do that, one of the best, one of the best and most painful ways to do that is die to your right to be right. Die to your right to be right. And here's why. Because when you focus on the moment, oftentimes you're focused on trying to be right in the wrong thing. And guess what being right in the wrong thing is called? Wrong. Being right at the wrong thing is still wrong. And that's what plays out with these guys. They wanted to be right. And what can happen is eventually those people that live on the other side of this for long moves right along. Because they're tired of always being in front of someone who's right about the wrong thing. But he can't even see it. Unfortunately, I had a perfect situation of that this week. I was in this very moment. We were having one of those discussions. You know what I mean? Like as couples, we have discussions and dialogues. I was having one of those. And um, with Jenny. And Jenny had asked me to do something. And in that moment, I choose to prioritize being right at the wrong thing. On one way, it's really easy for me to do that. If you remember those colors that we talked about, I'm a blue-red. And blues are really precise. They're very detailed. They pay attention to words. And in that moment, I was so focused on the words that we were going back and forth and what she was saying to me. I was so wrapped up in those words. I knew I was right around the words. And my preciseness, my detailedness, I was bringing it. And I was like, yeah, I'm so right right now. But I'm being right in the wrong thing the entire time. And ultimately, in the aftermath, what I had to recognize was I was wrong. She was right. And I had to say, please forgive me. Because what was really going on was not just a focusing on the moment. There was this other piece, that first piece, my pride and my ego, that was seeping through and using my personality as a weapon against her. You see, what she had asked me to do caused me to react protectively. I was using my personality to distract the real issue. 
The real issue was I was in that moment very self-centered because I realized that what she asked me to do that I didn't do made me feel very inadequate. It made me feel like a loser. And it made me feel like I wasn't enough in that moment. And that, that sucked. That was painful. And I didn't want to admit that. Because what do you do when you realize you're not enough in the moment? You can't fix it. You can't go get enough out the cabinet and just pour it in and fix it automatically. You have to sit and you're not being enough in that moment. You have to just kind of wallow because it's true. And so I'm parsing out words and I'm having this dialogue. And, and eventually my wife, because she's so wise, says, look, you're hearing the words I'm saying, but you're not hearing me. Hear me. And I was like, I don't think I'm hearing her then. It was like my answer I think I missed something. Because I was so convinced I was right. And then she said what she said. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm an idiot. I'm so sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. Because I had gotten so fixated on being right that I hadn't even noticed I was being right in the wrong thing. And it was both of these barriers coming up to fight against me derailing me and breaking down our communication right in front of me because at the end of the day i was so self-centered and so caught up on the sense of in, in inadequacies and unworthiness and insecurity that i stopped listening and i lost sight of what matters and i do this regularly in parenting i do this regularly working i do this regularly just in life reality is, is that we all do because these two things are insidious. So insidious that quite possibly you feel right now, how in the world am I even going to overcome it? How do I overcome pride and ego? How do I push through and always stay focused on what matters and not what's just happening in the moment? How do I learn to tune my heart and eyes to the why, not just the why? And the answer is actually found in the bloodline of Rehoboam. You see, for all of the wrongness that was in David and Solomon's life, for all of the stupid decisions they made, because there were some really stupid decisions that David and Solomon made, there was one thing that both of them got right. Solomon made it a fixation in his writing, which his son would have grown up hearing, and what we now call the book of Proverbs. But Solomon would have learned that lesson from his father, David. Because in the beginning of Proverbs, he says, my father said these things to me. My father taught me these things. And it's that the beginning of wisdom is a fear of God. Now that sounds really kind of confusing. But in the ancient world, the word fear wasn't used the way it's used today. We hear fear and we think terror, but in the ancient times, fear was synonymous with all respect and a proper understanding. You see, when God is God and he is big, then you immediately recognize you're small. But what it really fosters, actually Solomon's name, his other name, his kind of first name, Solomon's like his like nickname, but his first name meant I am loved. God loves me. It's kind of a simple English translation of that. David 
was and forever has been known as a man who was after God's heart. God loved David. You see, these two guys, for all of their issues, they never struggled with insecurity. They didn't have bravado. They had security. They knew they were loved. They knew there was a God who'd created them, who knew them before they even stepped foot in this world. And it gave them a freedom to not try to pretend to be God. It gave them a freedom to not know everything. The reason, one of the reasons besides the supernatural gift that God gives them, one of the reasons Solomon was so wise is Solomon was curious. We are born into this world in our early years, and we're just curious about everything. Because we step foot on planet Earth, understanding that we know nothing about this place that we find ourselves in. And somehow, some way along the process, we lose sight of one of the best things that ever happened to us, is that we just don't know anything. And we begin to tell ourselves how much we do know. We focus on all the stuff already inside our brains. We put degrees on the wall. We quote baseball stats. We throw up things that smoke screens to show how smart we actually are when in reality the best thing that we ever had going for us was when we knew we didn't know and that when you stand in front and presence and in light and the god who is infinite who is all-knowing the one who speaks stars into existence all of a sudden you start to see yourself in the proper position that while god is great he is also good And that loved people, secure people, people who are anchored, they don't have to feel threatened by what they don't know. They don't have to feel threatened by moments of not being. I can tell you my junk because I don't care if you use it against me. Because I'm not living for you or your approval. I'm already loved. I already got all that I need in this thing. So it's the reason in that moment when I've been an idiot to my wife, I can say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Because me being wrong doesn't threaten my worth or value. And this is what Solomon and David ultimately had. They knew God was good and that they were loved. They understood that God was for them, even in the moments when they had been against them. And that the beauty of the Christian message is that God stepped in to earth to reconcile the broken relationship we had with him and restore it. And that that restoration ripples into our lives all around us. And that's why truly, I think, legitimate Christianity being lived and expressed isn't just about this thing being right. It's also leaking into our lives this way, too. That you naturally want to make things right this way. Because you already have the security and the anchor of things being right this way. And that while in reality, relationships may not feel as dramatic as this moment. And that one conversation. Because in verse 19, we find out. That in reality, Israel had been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. That we we learn that the actual nation falls apart because of this one conversation. And that relationships may not feel that dramatic. But the reality is, is that they decay or they develop in the same way. It's just in a larger time frame. That we will either build up, develop bring life 
or we will slowly decay and erode and bring death. And that every word, while it moves at a slower time frame than their words, they're all doing the same thing. That what you say is carving out a way, a way of life or a way of death. And if you and I are going to begin to step foot into that way of life, then we have to become aware that there's some barriers there. The barrier of pride and ego, trying to cover up for all that iceberg junk underneath the surface. And that barrier of focusing on the moment and not what matters. Because we're so fixated on being right that we miss that we're being right in the wrong thing. And that God above, whose desire and frame that he wanted us to have was a heavenly father who wanted good things for us, said, here's the biggest, greatest gift that I want to give you words. Use it wisely. Use it to be a force for good. Use it to be a force for life. And I hope that this series and all that we've unpacked helps you to begin to step into that way of life. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? Whether you're exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.